welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Amy Steinfeld, the Santa Barbara Managing Partner with Brownstein. Amy is a land use and water lawyer with a broad understanding of environmental issues and a passion for the cannabis industry. Operating one of the most heavily regulated industries and states, her passion and genuine concern for her clients is critical to her success. Amy is also co-founder and co-chair of the California H2O Women Conference, which provides an opportunity to collaborate, educate, and support women leaders in the water industry. Check out their upcoming conference in January 2022 at californiah2owomenconference.com. We hope you enjoy hearing from Amy. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Amy Steinfeld with Brownstein. Thank you so much for being with us. We're really excited to dive in to the topics at hand. You um, have a lot to talk about in the industry around water and cannabis and women in leadership. But first, let's start with how you're connected to AEP. Sure. Thanks, ladies. Um, So our firm has always supported AEP. What's really unique about Brownstein Santa Barbara office is that, um, as you might imagine, we have um, several environmental attorneys, but we realized um, about 20 years ago or so that we couldn't really function and serve our clients in the way that we wanted without having certified land use planners. So we currently have three full-time planners, we're bringing in a fourth, and it's really helpful to have a multidisciplinary team here that focuses on permitting entitlements, the day-to-day, and then also sort of the PR side of things. Um, So as a result, our firm has supported AEP for several years. Um, Many of individuals here are members, and we're also huge fans of the conference because it's a great way to go and just get, you know, up-to-date information on all things impacting um, the environment, CEQA updates. And we also have um, a lot of CEQA uh, geeks here. So I know that's the focus of AEP, so we really support that. And just a little plug, we put out a regular publication called CEQA News You Can Use. So hopefully that'll be um, helpful to the membership. Absolutely helpful. And for those that attend the CEQA workshops, uh, we we always recommend subscribing to companies newsletters like Brownstein because they'll keep you up to date all the time. And, and Amy, you reminded me that you presented at the AEP conference in Santa Barbara that was at the Fest Parker, Parker and you talked about cannabis. Walk us through what you talked about exactly and why. Sure. So, you know, thinking back, that was a few years ago now, so so much have changed. So I can kind of go back and then talk about where we are today. So, um, you know, I've always been obsessed with the plants, um, both on the cannabis and hemp side. And in 2016, when California voters approved Prop 64, which legalized uh, recreational cannabis, prior to that, you may remember, um, California was the first state to legalize medical cannabis. But recreational cannabis was really a game changer. So Santa Barbara County opened its doors wide in 2018 to cannabis growers. And the reason being is they saw the writing on the wall. Farming has become harder and harder, especially when you have very high land values, such as in Santa Barbara County. And so they saw cannabis and hemp as a way for farmers to diversify uh, their crops. So they invited in the industry and it's been a really wild ride. So I think that conference, was it 19 or 18? Do you remember? I think it was 18. 18. So we were just getting started then and the County of Santa Barbara was developing and refining its regulations. 
What's really exciting from, from an attorney's point of view is that unlike water law, which is um, my other practice, cannabis was completely new. So literally the state was developing regulations, the county was developing regulations. So it was really cool to be a part of that process and have a lot of input on how do you regulate a plant that's been literally in the dark for so many decades. Um, so I think what I talked about um, back in 2000, um, you said what, 19? 18, 18. Something around there. <laughs> was, you know, how the county determined where cannabis could be planted, how much cannabis could be planted, and really how to regulate it. So unlike most other crops, if you go to, for example, put in strawberries, you don't need to obtain a discretionary permit from a county or city. You just, you know, throw the seeds down. You do have to comply with regional water board regulations, et cetera, but you don't actually have to go get a land use permit. So cannabis really shifted that. Um, and the county has really treated cannabis like a development use. And so the regulations are much stringent. They look at everything from utilities to fire access to where you're gonna place your processing facilities, um, how you're going to remove the product from the site. So at the time I was talking about the regulations and now looking forward over three years later, what we've seen is that um, Santa Barbara County has um, become actually the largest um, cultivation hotspot in California. We have more outdoor cannabis licenses than any other county, including Humboldt. Oh, that's and a fun fact. Yeah, yep. There's a lot of weed here. So, you know, it's funny because the opposition calls us Canna Barbara, which I think is awesome. I, think <laughs> really I have not heard of that. That's so yeah, funny. I'm, I'm going to make hats if anyone's interested. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's been a, it's been a really wild ride. And I think from a land use perspective, it's it's been fascinating because some of the policies haven't worked out as a whole. Um, the industry has been really overregulated. And, you know, both the state and the county, they were coming from a good place and they wanted to ensure public safety and all these other things. But unfortunately, it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, these farmers have to jump through so many hoops that I think what we're going to see in the next three years looking forward is deregulation, because unfortunately, many of these farmers just can't can't survive. It takes a whole team of planners, um, biologists, all kinds of environmental uh, professionals and millions of dollars just to get you to the point where you can put a seed in the ground. Wow. I mean, that's a massive industry. In, I mean, California usually has this problem, right, where we want to protect our water quality, our air quality, all of our natural resources, and we have CEQA to help us review discretionary actions for exactly that, for the environmental impact. And yet there's oftentimes these, I would say that not really environmental problems that sneak in and become these over-regulated convoluted webs of um, land entitlement and environmental permitting processes that is just like, it makes it not competitive for businesses to enter. And I love that you said, well, the future will likely be deregulation. How are, how is, how are you and Brownstein a part of that policy changing? Yeah. So, you know, I, I realized pretty early on in this industry that if we wanted to make this work um, in the face of so much opposition, which really came from, you know, decades, I, I'm sure you all remember, um, you know, in fourth or fifth grade, getting the talk about, you know, drugs. Um, I'm a bit older than than you ladies, but I remember Nancy Reagan, you know, the video showing that we were all going to die if we tried drugs. So as a result, there's a lot of stigma behind the plant and that's changing rapidly, but there's still a large contingent of people that just don't want the plant in their backyard. And so as a result of that, the industry, we needed to get all the farmers together, 
along with all the ancillary businesses and do education and basically um, try to help the public understand that in fact, this plant was extremely green. It was very benign, it's safer than alcohol. So we really had to just get out there and um, be sort of the face of the industry. So I worked with a group of farmers to form the North County Farmers Guild. And the purpose really is really just to share with the public um, what the farmers were up to, because you know there's a lot of, um, you know, who are these farmers? Are they from out of town? And no one really knew who they were. So we wanted to get the plant out into the light along with the folks growing it and, and demonstrate that cannabis farmers could be great neighbors and had a lot to offer. So as a result, we've gone through, I think there's something like over 27 hearings at the County Board of Supervisors and the Planning Commission level where we brought the industry together to just comment on every iteration um, and every change in the law. And, you know, it's still not perfect, but uh, we're getting there. How does, um, what were some of the big issues around water? Because California drought, Santa Barbara drought, I, I think if I remember correctly, Santa Barbara has not really a no growth policy, but kind of based on water. Walk us through like how water is connected to the plant or, or how it's such a hot topic in the area that you live in. Yeah, so Santa Barbara County is, is fairly arid. Um, we do have a pretty diversified um, set of water sources. We have some healthy groundwater basins. And in addition, we have um, numerous creeks and rivers, the big one being the Santa Inez River. And of course we have Kachuma, which is um, stores state water project water. So we're connected to the larger state system. We're too far north to get Colorado River water, but we have a pretty robust um, set of water supplies. And also more recently, um, the city of Santa Barbara revved up its desal plant, which is serving a lot cool. of coastal areas and um, shortly will be serving the Montecito community. Um, as far as cannabis goes, uh, there was a lot of talk and rumors flying that cannabis was gonna suck these basins dry. But in reality, cannabis is an extremely water um, efficient crop. It uses about one to one and a half acre feet per year per crop. And that can be compared with, for example, grapes and citrus, which use between three and four acre feet per year. Um, in addition, you know, the amount of cannabis grown pales in comparison to grapes, strawberries, et cetera. So really what cannabis is using is a drop in the bucket. Um, but to alleviate concerns, the County of Santa Barbara requires every cannabis farmer to have a water conservation plan. And that's very different than any other crop. So water really isn't, you know, an issue, but it's frustrating because the state of California um, developed a cannabis water policy, which highly regulates the farmer's um, use of water, which I think is misplaced. You know, let's let's focus on hay. Let's focus on the million acre feet of hay and cotton and other high water use crops that are grown in the state, as opposed to, you know, just such a small, small, small piece of the puzzle. That said, you know, cannabis has an outsized economic impact. So, you know, it's a very high value crop. So they can actually produce a lot of economic value on a much smaller footprint. So overall, some of the farmers that you see, they may have taken out other crops like broccoli where they may have had, let's just say a few hundred acres of broccoli using quite a bit of water. And then they may be shrunk down to 20 acres of cannabis, yet they're making um, more money than they did um, prior to that. So I think, Overall, you know, cannabis is great because you can shrink your carbon footprint, your water footprint, um, and, and take some land out of production and get it back in, you know, um, native grasses, those kind of things. Does cannabis help regenerate soil health? Because is it, well, I guess 
at a high level, you could use it as a rotational crop, right? So that it doesn't just deplete the soil over and over and over again. It does. It's it's very good at cleaning the soil. It sucks up everything in there, um, heavy metals, and folks are using hemp to actually rejuvenate soils and then till it under. So there's still a lot of studies that are being done about the environmental benefits. Um, as you know, it's it, it is still federally illegal. So unfortunately, the research is just at the beginning. You know, we've lost a lot of the the knowledge that we had you know, prior to 1937 when um, hemp was legal and it was grown all over the United States. So the good news is on the Central Coast, there's a lot of universities involvement and um, excitement over the plant. So new universities are actually starting up cannabis degrees, hemp degrees. Our local community college, Alan Hancock, is doing a lot with researching the benefits of hemp. So I think we're going to start to see more and more data coming out of that. I was thinking as you're saying this, I'm like hemp milk over almond milk. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's little changes like that, and um, like you know, from the consumer side. And so as you're talking about this, and you know, you said like you're a water lawyer and land use planning lawyer, and this is a fairly new industry in terms as far as regulation and policy. And so, what I'm interested in is what attracted you to the field in the first place. Like, what? How did you get? even started into water law and why law school and why environmental law and like kind of what was your path to to coming now where you're like part of like all this like you know policy changes and you know the future really of land use planning yeah so i've always been interested in water and i think it all started when i don't know if if this happened at your elementary school but the drought um, water duck visited us i think it was every year starting in something like second grade and, you know, I just became, you know, horrified and, and fascinated by the fact that we essentially in Southern California live in a desert, yet you would never guess it from the green lawns and, you know, landscaping. But it was always interesting to me that we obtain most of our water north of San Francisco, but the population centers are mainly south of San Francisco. So I think it was the water supply that got me interested in that in the first place. Um, and as a result, when I went to UCLA, I got a degree in geography and environmental studies. And it was more, you know, broader than water, but water was always a big theme. And, you know, you've, you've probably always heard about, you know, the next wars will be fought over water. So I knew I was in the right field and there was so much work to do, especially with the intersection with climate change, which is probably, you know, the obviously the biggest issue facing water managers in California. Um, because we can no longer kind of look back at what worked, which is really relying on the Sierra's uh, snowpack as our storage. And now we have these atmospheric rivers that we saw, what was that, maybe um, a week and a half ago where Sacramento got up to five inches of rain. So really the shift is interesting is we're having to, so things I learned 20 years ago at UCLA, I graduated in 2000, are actually have completely come true where we have longer droughts, more severe droughts, and our rain rainfall and precipitations coming in only a few days over the year. So we're really having to pivot in the way that we manage water supplies. Um, so yeah, so after law school, I actually took kind of a slightly different path. I wasn't really ready to go to grad school. I don't think anyone should go to grad school at 22. Uh, so I took a few, few years off to work for um, a company called um, California Safety um, Compliance Corporation. And it was, it was an auditing company. So we went out and inspected sweatshops all over the world for companies like um, Nordstrom's and Gap. And at the time, if you recall, there was a lot of concern over child labor and workers' rights. 
So it was a really great opportunity to travel the world. Um, I went to 37 countries in two years. And um, at the time, wow. <laughs> yeah, yes, and some pretty, pretty uh, remote places like um, Pakistan and Malawi and some countries I'll, I'll probably, frankly, never go back to. But we're really, really cool experience to see those. Um, but yeah, at the time, you know, consumers, it was all about child labor, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But um, so I realized that there was sort of a, a hole there. So while I was at the company, I created it more of an environmental audit tool. So we started asking these questions at each of these factories, like, what, how are you disposing of waste? And if you remember that the stone wash look, um, you know, that, that uses really damaging chemicals. So we would talk to the factories about, you know, better safety precautions and things like that. Um, and then after two years, um, I guess my parents, you know, didn't think I was going to survive because I got myself into some pretty weird situations. Um, so I ended up applying to law school at the time and I ended up going to CU Law in Boulder because they had at the time the only water law program. And um, it's Boulder, right? So yeah, that makes sense. Colorado River. Yeah, exactly. The, the headwaters. So amazing opportunity there to um, study with some fabulous professors and also to take some water classes in the engineering department. So they actually allowed the law students to um, kind of learn more from a technical side about groundwater, how it flows, different things like that. So got a great um, degree there. And then I saw there was a water water law opening in Santa Barbara. And um, Laurel, I think, as you know, Santa Barbara is, in my opinion, um, maybe the most perfect city in the world. So I jumped at the opportunity to come here. And yeah, the rest is history. I've been at the firm now for 16 years. Oh, that how did they keep you so happy? I mean, 16 <laughs> years, that's got to be a great culture. Yeah, you know, it, it's a fabulous firm and, um, you know, they, they really, people here really care and we have a group of folks. I think that what's interesting about our group is that everyone in our environmental department or what we call our natural resources law group is super passionate about whether it's water, land use planning, um, you know, sustainable development, climate change. So, it all really came together and I, I love the folks I work with, um, some incredible attorneys, and then also we have great clients. So we work with water districts, cities, um, private water agencies, and yeah, so it's it's been it's been a great opportunity and, and the firm really has focused on um, ensuring that women have everything they need to succeed here. So we, for example, over the past several years, increased our maternity leave. Um, so we have, um, we offer six months off for our attorneys. I um, want to celebrate that, especially where we are right huge. now. Yes. Thank you yes. so much to Brownstein for leading that charge. Yeah, so that's that's really um, helped to maintain, you know, our, our women here. And we do a lot um, on a regular basis. We have a program called the Women's uh, WLI Leadership Initiative. So we bring in female leaders um, from all walks of life to kind of discuss their path and also what it takes to help women succeed in, um, you know, the legal world. You know, the stats are still pretty grim as far as the number of equity partners at law firms. I think it hovers around 18% or so women, but Brownstein has um, some of the highest numbers um, nationwide of um, women who are equity partners. So, you know, they've done a lot to support women um, in whatever kind of aspect of their life. And, you know, we, we also get together and just, just have fun together as women and 
the firm really supports our H2O Water Conference. So I think having um, women in leadership is really important and recognizing, for example, that women may network in a different way than men and they may not have all the same opportunities. So for example, um, at most of these water conferences, the big event is golfing, right? So true, I, so yeah. true. I don't know about you, but you know, I, yeah, I don't golf and have no interest in golfing. And so women miss out on a lot of these opportunities to meet new clients and, and do the hardcore networking. So at our H2O Water Women Conference, um, we don't golf, but instead we have other activities like um, wine tasting and yoga and things like that to, to bring women together and to kind of celebrate, you know, the differences. And also we've tried to create a reference network. So when I go to refer a case out, I try to refer it to a female attorney if I can't take the case. Um, and the same goes, I try to put together all female teams on projects. So whether it's hiring um, a biologist, an archeologist, a historical consultant, um, really looking at that network. I think that's so important and critical and we about women helping women. And I think it's something that there's not like, you really have to bring awareness to making those decisions and bringing like lifting women up because a lot of like what you were saying about the difference in networking, for example, I think there is a lot of data around women who don't speak up because they don't feel qualified or, you know, like I'm thinking about, I'm sure you've heard the statistics about, you know, if there's a job ad, women feel, <laughs> sorry. the ladies in my house agree. <laughs> um, there's a lot of statistics about women not applying for jobs unless they check every single box. You get what I'm saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, but I just want to highlight that as women and um, being a woman and asking, looking for female mentorship and then being a female leader as well and making those decisions in our day-to-day -day, um, aspects of work. And I know there's people who would be like, well, what about the men? It's like, I, they're okay. They're doing fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm laughing because we, you know, Jess as a leader, I'm a leader, Amy, you're a leader. Here we are, three female leaders on a podcast talking about leadership. Where do you feel like the future is for women in environmental leadership in this profession specifically? Like where, I mean, in my experience in, in AEP specifically, there's a lot of female engagement and that makes me very happy. What, what is it like in, in other, in the, in the legal side of things? Is it mostly men or women or what's the diversity like and where do you see it changing or going? So, you know, great question. In, in the water world, um, historically, um, these lawyers are called water buffaloes. And they're the men that really paved the way for, for the water, what we call the water bar. Um, but over time, you know, there's been a huge influx of women into the water law profession, which has been awesome. So um, I'd say over half of our water attorneys are women here at the firm. So we've seen a shift. As far as on the technical, non-legal side, um, the hydrology field, and the hydrogeology field still tends to be, you know, mainly made up of um, men. Um, but, you know, I think that's changing too. So I've seen more and more young hydrologists um, that are women, but, you know, honestly, the go-to hydrologists that are really, you know, top of their field do, do still tend to be men. So I think there needs to be more mentorship at, in some of these kind of technical and more, you know, hard science careers. Um, but again, yeah, it, it's really changing. Um, 
in the cannabis world, um, from an industry perspective, unfortunately, most of the folks in the cannabis industry are men. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that cannabis, you can't bank cannabis money in an FDIC insured bank because it's federally illegal. So unless you have access to a lot of capital to start up your own cannabis company and you have wealthy friends, um, you know, sadly women and um, people of color have been really largely left out of this new cannabis industry and the numbers sadly of minorities and women are dropping every day just because um, it's such a high bar to enter the industry. So I think there, there's been a lot of emphasis on how do you, um, you know, create opportunities for education for people who want to enter the space. So again, I think a lot of folks are trying and I think we will see shifts, but we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. I, I mean, this is like a, a call to action for those in the finance industry. If you want to serve a gap here where you have an industry that can't bank and FDIC insured banking institutions, and you have um, women and people of color who would benefit greatly from being a part of this industry, then maybe set up some alternative financing institutions like revolving credit unions or community banking or community finance district, something like that to, to support us. I mean, it can't just be it can't just be black or white. There's got to be like a gray area where we can where we can serve these people. So call to action to you, financing people that can sort this out for us. And something too, um, I wanted to ask Amy as you're talking about these issues is what recommendations do you have for people earlier in their careers or interested in getting into this field? Yeah, so, you know, I think that um, what's sort of lacking is all the information gathering before you make your decision. So going to work in some of these fields and, you know, if you want to be a biologist, um, really understanding what it what it takes. So I think what we've lost over the years is the opportunity for um, really robust internships where you're really doing the work before you decide. I think there's so many, for example, um, law students that um, spend three years and, you know, their life savings on going to law school and you know, when they come out saddled with debt, they realize, oh no, you know, I, I actually hate being a lawyer. So I think really understanding and, and figuring out your path before you jump into it's important. And we also need, I think, just overall, you know, as far as changes to the environmental profession, more of an emphasis on environmental education at the primary school level. So um, we often don't see that. And it wasn't until, you know, later, I think even high school where you start to kind of understand the magnitude of the issues facing our world. And, you know, by then it might be too late to really get sort of the ar army of environmental profession professionals we need to address, you know, these really, really big issues that are facing us right now. I think it's so great that you brought up early education because that's what inspired your career and what an impact it can have at such a young age and early level. And, to make sure that we're talking about that in the curriculum. And, you know, as you're talking to about learning and getting internship opportunities and learning, you know, before fully jumping in from the other side of it, from the business side and employer side, leadership side, what can we be doing to help create those opportunities? Yeah, so I think, you know, partnering with local community colleges to hire interns. Um, in fact, I had, this reminds me, I need to call back um, a student that just reached out to me that is interested in cannabis compliance. Um, and so kind of bringing him into the field, giving him an opportunity here. 
Um, so, you know, I think oftentimes it's, it's a lot of work to bring in an intern because someone needs to supervise them, but really taking that time. I also think, um, this is really cool. And this was just by accident, but, um, uh, in our building in Santa Barbara, the, there was a new group that just moved in upstairs and they're a group of, um, interdisciplinary environmental data scientists from UCSB, sort of a private arm of UCSB. And, um, you know, just sort of that, you know, thinking outside of your company and, and meeting with other folks that are doing, you know, like-minded things. And so now we're on the list to go attend, you know, all of their seminars on climate change and sea level rise and things that we're also working on. So trying to kind of get out of your box and, and meet other folks, because I think um, what's interesting, for example, in the cannabis industry, there's no kind of central repository of data. So what's been helpful um, to our practice group is anyone who calls will take a meeting, whether it's a company, it's a laboratory, a manufacturing company, someone selling CBD, just to kind of learn more and um, make sure that our lawyers, for example, really understand the industries in which they're working, whether it's water, whether it's development work um, or cannabis. I think that's a great um, pro tip for everyone is to be like a, a multidisciplinary um, thinker. So, you know, for, for me, I'm a regulatory affairs specialist. So the permitting world in California just makes sense to me. Like I just understand it and I get it. But to be able to communicate and speak with engineers or communicate and speak with environmental consultants to help me do the technical work, I need to have had that experience preparing biological technical reports, preparing CEQA documents, reviewing um, grading plans and permits for stormwater pollution prevention and dust control plans. Like it is, the environmental world is so interdisciplinary. I, I highly encourage people to not only um, engage in an internship, for, for you students who want an internship, create one, call up like, like this gentleman did, called you up and said, hey, I'm interested in this. Like, let's do an internship kind of thing. And also through AEP and this network, we want to do a mentorship program where we're we're linking people up and connecting them. Um, I have been in the industry for 14 years and I need a mentor. And there's people that have been in the industry for zero years and need a mentor. And so I want to take this moment to encourage everybody who is interested in hydrogeology, cultural resources, water law, any type of um, discipline or pathway in the environmental profession to just get in there and just start experiencing it, right? Yeah, I like what you said about maybe not investing tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars before you're totally, you're a little bit more clear about if it's worth the return on investment or not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and thank you. Can you share with us an example of, um, Aside from you know going around the sweatshops around the world and then hopping into um, water law and cannabis and then female leadership, are there any other parts of the environmental industry that have like really piqued your interest that you maybe do a little side gig in or hobby or read about on your own, or are you at max capacity? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I think obviously you know most folks are, are reading and concerned about climate change. I, I have to kind of limit how much I do read because frankly, it's just so depressing. Um, I have a six-year-old, so, you know, I worry about his future and even having, you know, making the decision to have a child was a hard one knowing that we're, what we're facing and how, 
we just can't seem to come together to stay below, you know, the tipping point, which is unfortunate, which we just saw come out of this recent conference. But so, yeah, I mean, I'm always reading about climate change because it affects all my farmer clients. And then also, of course, our developer clients who may be on the coast. And then, um, of course, all the, the water um, folks serving, you know, potable water supplies. So that's definitely something I read about. I think on the fun side, um, I'm really into gardening. So I like, you know, growing my own food and um, geeking out with my trees on the weekend. So I have everything from guava to passion fruit to bananas. And um, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of fun. I feel like that's just a small little um, thing that you can do, but I love, you know, working out with the soil and being outside and um, kind of encouraging my, my son to um, grow vegetables. Um, last year, we started to, for the first time, to grow cannabis, just to kind of understand what my clients were going through. And that was a fun little experiment. So, yeah. I love that, getting your hands dirty. Well, I, I think that this is a great segue into the Wrap Up Rapid Five series, unless, Jessa, you have another question on your mind. Oh, the only other thing I wanted to ask about, and we we were talking a little bit before recording, is the um, water conference, the Women in Water. And I, I don't know if we brought that up yet, that it's coming up in January 2022. Yeah, so check out H2O um, Water Women. And our conference is going to be it's in Santa Barbara. Because of COVID, we obviously didn't do it um, over the past two years. But it's a conference that occurs every two years, and we bring together leaders in the water space, um, not just from California, but but from all over. So check out H2O Water Women and you can learn more about this upcoming conference, which will be her, um, which will be set, I think it's the third week in January, 2022. Great, thank you for sharing the details on that. All right, so for the wrap up rapid five. Okay, what is your favorite daily habit? I would say walking to work. Uh, sadly, it's the only exercise I get these days, but it's a nice chance to kind of meditate and, and get focused before I you know, get hit with all the client calls. All right, uh, three things you'd bring to a deserted island. I'm not sure he's a thing, but I would bring my six-year-old because he's really fun and we love to do art. So I would bring watercolors um, and we both are sugar addicts. So we would bring all things sweet. Sounds up fun. <laughs> okay, what's your favorite environmental policy? So, you know, California really set the standard for testing cannabis. And, you know, it, it's really interesting because what I've learned about this is that, um, so California requires that cannabis does not have any pesticides, have heavy metals, mold, et cetera on the flower before it's sold into stores. So it's great to ensure people have access to clean product. And I think it's going to also change the way that we look at, for example, organic food, baby food, which is not subject to the same standards. Interesting. All right. Uh, favorite fauna or flora? Um, I love succulents. I think I know they're really trendy, but um, I, I have too many of them and they're, they're fun to grow. Um, and then I like, um, I don't know if this is fauna, I guess, <laughs> flat-faced dogs, like pugs. <laughs> so Cute. Totally. I love it. We're big dog people here. <laughs> that wasn't obvious. <laughs> um, and finish this thought, uh, wouldn't it be cool if? 
So I think if, you know, on the topic of climate change, if the world's nations could actually get together and come up with a plan to ensure that we phase out fossil fuels by 2030. Yes. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing. We love chatting with you. Thank you. I have you. a lot more questions. <laughs> yes, I, I want to keep going. Until next time, Amy. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. Also, if you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo under a minute, uh, ideally to podcast with an S at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. Again, that's podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org or any feedback that you'd like to share. We love feedback. Thank you.